to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today's guest is Steven Novella. He is a neurologist. Uh, he is an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine, but he's mainly known for uh, his involvement in skeptics movement. So he is the host and producer of a fantastic, 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 fantastic uh, podcast. <laughs> Sorry. I take it you're a fan I of am, said podcast. I am a fan, yes. Uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Um, so he, Stephen is the, the host and the producer. And he also writes a blog and he's uh, editor of Science-Based Medicine Journal. And I mean, he's one of those people um, where I wonder... When does he sleep? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's very prolific. Yeah. Super. Um, and I'm very grateful that he found time to talk to us. Oh, here is Stephen Novella, famous skeptic, uh, giving his views on uh, biases and uh, science communication and peer-to-peer uh, -peer communication in academia. podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, uh, which is about promoting not only science communication, but also critical thinking, uh, what we call scientific skepticism, the idea that you really have to have science and critical thinking together as a package deal. Uh, and I think, well, we could talk about this for a while, but I think mm -hmm. that's what the evidence supports in terms of changing public opinion. Uh, I also just published a book by the same name, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which again is kind of a primer. It goes over all of the concepts of science versus pseudoscience, self-deception, how our brains work, you know, cognitive biases, uh, and essentially all the stuff that we talk about on our show. Uh, I also have a, a daily blog and am the senior editor for Science-Based Medicine. Stephen, um, can you please tell me what you think of open science movements? Oh, yeah, so we're, we're big supporters of open science in, in uh, various ways. So uh, especially now with you know the internet, we have access to a lot of information. And um, you know, open access, I think, is critical to the public understanding of science and engagement with science. Um, it's very frustrating, of course, if you're trying to you know, the, the media is reporting a news item and, um, and uh, I can't get to the original study because it's behind a paywall. So that actually limits my ability to then explain that science further to the public and certainly limits the ability of anyone in the public who wants to have access to the study uh, to, to get it. Um, so I think that um, it's a, it is a fantastic movement, and I agree with the with the principles. Of course, whenever you introduce anything new like that, it comes with its own challenges. Uh, you know, pretty much there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to break anything new that you come mm -hmm. up with, and of course that's happening. But um, those are those are challenges that I that challenges that I think are being confronted pretty directly. And given how new it all is, I think it's actually going fairly well. Um, if you think about how quickly things are moving. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, this is a fairly recent movement, but I, I think it has the potential to really transform the relationship, you know, between the public and science. Well, the reason why I actually wanted to talk to you, to you about this, uh, because 
for me, open science movement is not about just the access, but it's also the way how you do science, like how mm-hmm. how actually the, the process of science being conducted. And it has something to do with well, the momentum it gained, the open science movement, at least in Europe, was quite linked to the um, reproduci- replication crisis. Replication yeah. crisis. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, and this leads me... Um, to your book or the things you're always talking about, the biases, because this is sort of at heart of the replication, reproducibility crisis. I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I wonder if you have thought about that as well, that um, basically open science as a, as a way of transforming the way we do science and whether this has something, um, whether this is something positive in a way. I mean, um, as a force to promote critical thinking also among scientists. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. And that's what I think um, at science-based medicine, that's really our mission is to promote open science within medicine, within medical mm-hmm. science. Uh, there, So you know, reproducibility obviously is one critical aspect of the progress of science. At the end of the day, that's how we know if a phenomenon is real or not because it, if it's real it should reliably reproduce and if it isn't then it tends not to re- reproduce you have what we call the decline effect where effect sizes tend to shrink over time and eventually they go away and then that that's the point at which you realize that oh it probably wasn't a real phenomenon um but and also it's interesting because you know, the, the reproducibility crisis itself is a little controversial you know that a lot of the studies which showed that there's a low replication rate, while well, I think there's definitely something there, they haven't reproduced that well themselves. And which just shows you how like endlessly recursive the self-correcting mechanism of science is, that even, you know, it, it gets very meta, like even the, the self-correcting process itself is self-correcting in a way. And I think that's what, that's where we're getting to. We're getting to this fairly sophisticated level where, you know, I think, you know, most researchers understand the basic nuts and bolts of science. Um, and that's that works well enough. You know, like just basic rigorous methodology works fairly well, especially when we're dealing with a lot of the the low-hanging fruit, you know, the I think the more straightforward questions in science. But as science progresses, the problems get harder, they get more subtle, they get more complicated, and that requires us to get to to do more rigorous methodology. Uh, in addition, you know, more subtle biases or errors in methodology tend to have a greater effect as we're looking for more subtle effects, right? You have to, mm-hmm. your, the methodology is to get more and more rigorous. And then as, as science has become institutionalized, which is great, but that also means that to some extent it has become big business itself or is mm-hmm. intimately tied to big business or has political or ideological implications, then a whole nother suite of biases uh, comes into play. So now, you know, today I see that we're trying to deal with a lot of really subtle issues with statistics, with reproducibility, with open access versus traditional models of publication, you know, the editorial process, the peer review process, uh, all of these things are being examined quite closely in order to, to uh, undergo another round, as I see it, of of increased rigor within, you know, mm-hmm. the way science is done, uh, because we have to basically 
Uh, if we don't do that, then I think that the um, the findings, the conclusions of science are are you know are less reliable. Um, yeah, uh, and also, I mean, one interesting aspect um, that everybody is talking about in uh, in context of open science about incentives. So. Um, as um, the the whole system of incentives for doing science has gone wrong somewhere um, mm -hmm. in the process, um, and I wonder um, can the increased rigor actually um, help there? Because this is a totally different different problem that's not really that scientific in a way. So, um, do you think skepticism, or like the sort of questioning um, scientific practice, or like what's true, what's not? How can this be linked to like changing the system of incentives for science? Yeah, I, I agree that the there's a lot of perverse incentives mm -hmm. in the way science is done, and that actually harms the rigor of uh, that's being published. So, for example, uh, in academia, definitely in the United States, some, I, I, my sense is that it's pretty similar everywhere. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. There, there's a huge incentive to publish, right? The publisher yeah. perish model, mm -hmm. and um, what that has that has motivated or incentivized researchers to do a number of things. One is to publish what is cynically called the minimal publishable unit of their research. Right, you break up their research into the smallest bit that you could get published, uh, rather than, for example, doing internal replications and doing a lot more rigorous study and only publishing something when you get to a, a higher threshold where the phenomenon is more likely to be real. So what what the pressure to publish has created is essentially flooded the scientific literature with a lot of preliminary studies that are mostly false positive and and that's been clearly demonstrated multiple ways. Um that that in and of itself then leads to a lot of waste I think in the whole scientific endeavor because then other researchers end up chasing down these positive results. And when they, it could have been nipped in the bud a lot sooner if, you know, you know, if the researchers just published one big paper rather than trying to publish this three or four smaller papers, uh, just to give one example. There's also incentives at the publishing end. Um, so again, open access journals have an incentive to publish a lot of crappy studies. So they publish a lot of crappy studies and the traditional journals have an incentive to publish papers that will get them a high impact factor, which means new and interesting findings, which are exactly the findings that are the most likely to be wrong and retracted. And so there's this with seemingly puzzling correlation between high impact journals and higher rates of retraction, but it actually makes sense if you follow the incentives, right? So I do think we need to rethink the entire structure and network of incentives in academia and in science and to to slow down things in a in, in a little bit, you know, to, so that people researchers are free to sit with an idea and really work through it, and you know, do again uh, build their research towards a reliable conclusion before feeling the pressure to publish, and should be disincentivized if anything from publishing lots of preliminary studies, most of which are going to turn out to have been wrong. Um, I obviously, I think that, uh, there's room for 
communicating preliminary findings to fellow researchers so that they can sort of keep tabs on what other labs are doing and that might influence their own research. But I think we need to separate out that kind of preprint communication mm -hmm. among researchers and studies that get published in the literature, you know, that raised to that threshold of being a peer-reviewed published study. I think they're getting mixed together now and that's causing a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion with the media, with the public, and also, um, you know, my own profession of medicine, it causes a lot of confusion for practitioners. You know, we're trying to figure out what, how to practice medicine based on all this noise. There's way too much noise in the system. We need to figure out a way to reduce it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's kind of, um, there are different takes on the on the subject. So uh, there are also people who are calling for actually less big stories and more single observations. Single observations, not as in, uh, well, I've done experiment once and therefore that's what it is, uh, mm. but more like as not, uh, not publishing a narrative, but publishing the actual observations. Um, because now uh, one of the incentives for um, publishing is to have a narrative, yeah? to have a story, a complete story, which is usually not the story that you set out to do. And it's basically you make a story in the end. <laughs> so um, that also creates... Um, yeah, it creates a splashy story, but it does not necessarily create a true result that's uh, going to hold in the long run. Um, so a lot of people say actually that uh, this whole peer review system and the publishing stories is basically that's what's leading to uh, wrong incentives and actually doing science disservice. And that more noise is actually better and, um, and maybe better um, algorithms, better um, clustering of data as in... Um, topics um, that's needed so it's it's interesting interesting um, field in a way because it's uh, it's being yeah. created on different sides right now so uh, definitely preprints is uh, shaking up the publishing industry which is good um, and um, also gives room for uh, more collaboration and uh, before the story is finished so um, and also gives people incentive to publish faster instead of you know PhD um, PhD in Europe is like around three years so it's really hard to have a big story in three years so right. um, um, so but if you finish your PhD without a publication, then you can basically forget a career in academia. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting field. But as you mentioned, practicing medicine, and um, I was thinking because the open science movement, at least from the European, uh, well, European Commission, European Union perspective, also includes public engagement, citizen science, and um, basically open access as in uh, really involving society in research. So there's a lot of projects that um, set out to uh, find new ways how to collaborate or how to um, establish collaborations between science and society. And I was thinking, well, because one, one big topic there is to include patients in research, mm -hmm. but not as objects, but not as subjects or objects or donators of bodily fluids, but actually as involved um, as involved on eye-level uh, involvement in research. And I wonder, um, is this something that you are engaging in or thinking about? Is, do you see any value in it um, in general? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think we should try to get the public as engaged as possible in science. I do, I think citizen science is fantastic, you know, crowdsourcing certain aspects of the scientific process under, you know, the supervision of the scientists who are doing the hypothesis testing and data, data analysis, et cetera. Uh, and we do, you know, the, the, definitely the model with patients, we 
the model of practicing medicine that includes researchers to get the patients as involved you know, intellectually as possible in not only their own care, but uh, in any research project where they are subject. So we try not to treat them like lab rats or like, as you say, like subjects, uh, but there is more of the informed consent model, not the paternalistic mm-hmm. model. And the informed consent means you, you know, you need to give patients uh, as much information as is necessary for them to be able to be an active participant in the decision-making. Um, but, you know, of course, having said that, you have to balance that against the rigors of doing good science. So, uh, like, while citizen science is a good idea, uh, we, you know, science is in a democracy, you know, it's not about voting or uh, or crowdsourcing opinion. It's it's about people participating, but at the end of the day, there's got to be some clear, you know, rigorous methodology, and it takes a high level of expertise to do that. That's a, that's the trick with science communication, and I think with science journalism and and with open science, I think one of the big challenges is how do we uh, move in this direction of greater openness while maintaining high levels of uh, expertise and, and rigor and professionalism. Uh, I think that's that's a challenge in general for the internet age, right? We've mm. kind of lost a lot of our editorial filters. We've democratized information and that, that has good aspects to it and it has bad aspects to it. And I think we're still trying to sort out, well, how do we leverage the this democratization of knowledge, of information, of science, for its advantages, while uh, not you know falling victim to the disadvantages, you know where again everything degenerates into noise. We don't want that to happen. Um, you know, obviously, and there's sort of this creative chaos sweet spot in there somewhere. You know, we if things get too locked down, then there's no room for creativity, and if they're too free, then there's just noise. There's no signal. So with science, I like to think of it in terms of you know, we need to, first of all, spread our bets out a little bit. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket, right? But at the same time, we want to hit that sweet spot where we have, you know, enough speculation and, you know, crowdsourcing and ideas um, that, uh, you know, we, we, that we are maximizing creativity. But at the same time, we need this sort of slow, deliberate, you know, rigorous methodology. You have to combine those two things at the same time. Uh, if you go too far to one end or the other, then science can grind to a halt. You know, we, we either it's way, way too slow and authoritarian at one end, or it just spins off into fantasy land at the other end. Because, you know, p- um, human beings are very pattern, you know, seeking uh, types of creatures. And if you give them too much noise, they'll see the patterns that they want to see. You know, there needs to be something that really constrains our perception. We we need to be able to make sure that we're actually pulling a real signal out of the noise. And if that signal to noise ratio isn't optimal, we're just going to make up stuff, right? We're just going to see what we want to see. And that will, that's pseudoscience, right? That's, that's Mm -hmm. how pseudoscience, pseudoscience operates in, in a different realm where it's all noise, it's all creativity, and there's no real rigor. And so they just see whatever they want to see. Well, we don't want to get to that end of the spectrum. We have to, you have to, we have to maintain, you know, the the expertise and the professionalism and the rigor in order to be doing real science. 
So you think that the publication, because I'm thinking what what would be the filter? I mean, the because, yeah, I'm, there has to be some kind of guarding mechanism that yeah. against the noise, right, or filter. So who would that filter be? Because we see with science, I mean, with scientists and science, and that's the main critique of open science movement, that there's a lot of um, gatekeeping that's not really... Um, well, it's not really helping science neither, right? And yeah. uh, and all this the retraction. I agree. And you know, and yeah. Um, so who who and or yeah. what will be your ideal gatekeeper then in a way? So I still think that we need some version of peer review. Mm. Um, but I do think we need to rethink the entire infrastructure, to be honest with you. I think that the internet uh and social media and preprint servers. Uh, and the fact that journals are not limited to paper, you know, they can publish mm -hmm. online, that the opportunities of, you know, the digital revolution essentially give, we have an opportunity to completely rethink how uh, we publish science and present science. I think that the existing model is is a false dichotomy, right? You have peer-reviewed Either you're peer-reviewed or you're not peer-reviewed. And there's like this one single threshold. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make that one single threshold serve all of our needs. And it doesn't serve all of our needs. And so things get all mixed up together. And that causes a lot of the confusion. Um, there's clearly different kinds of science and different kinds of, of research and publications. And they should be treated differently, but they should all be allowed for. I think so part of the problem is if you know, since you have this one threshold of peer review, uh, then you have some journals which are trying to keep as much out of it as possible, and then other people are saying, "But we need to communicate all this information," but without getting to the peer review level. So then you have you, again you have this dichotomous situation where you have way too much control at one end and chaos at the other end. Well, what if we just spread it out? What if we come up with multiple different kinds of of thresholds or ways of communicating science that um, where you had the high end, you still have something like a peer-reviewed published study that, um, and in fact, I would even think cons consider it because again, we have the opportunity to think outside the box, you know, just rethink everything. I would like there to be like a really high level of a published study, even higher than the current level of peer review, where something is like beyond peer review. It is, been community reviewed, and it is uh, it gets a very high rating as being a a fairly definitive, rigorous study. Right, it's the kind of thing that you can base decisions on, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to preliminary or pilot studies or exploratory studies or observational studies, which are important to the process, but they really shouldn't be the basis of um, decision making. Right, uh, and then you have exact replications, which really need to get much more exposure. Right now we have like journals will not publish exact replications because they're boring and they don't really help their impact factor. But that may be the most important part of science is doing those exact replications or some kind of replication, even if it's not exact. Um, so there needs to be more room for replications, more incentive for replications. There might even need to be experts in replication or everybody needs to do a certain amount of that. And and journals should make room for them. In fact, they should promote them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then preliminary exploratory studies need to have a lower threshold, but they needed to, to be treated as preliminary, not as they shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a press release, 
to the media saying, look what we found when all you have is a pilot study that we really can't use as a basis for conclusions. That should be communicated rapidly and efficiently to other researchers because that's the purpose of those studies is to tell researchers how to do more research. And then there's the thing that rises to the level of, okay, this is something that is probably true. It's been confirmed. It's been, re- you know, whatever. And that is the kind that is the highest level where we could send out your press release and say, yep, this is what the science probably mm-hmm. shows now. So I would like to see these multiple levels with editorial, peer review, peer review, community review process, and clearly distinguished for what they are. And then it needs to be communicated very uh, clearly to the media and to the public what these different kinds of of studies are. So I think uh, we just need to get out of this false dichotomy of you're either published in the peer-reviewed literature or you're not. We need to create more of a spectrum. Well, I guess that's what, exactly what's happening, sort of, in a way, because there is a whole, yeah. actually, open science also uh, spurred the whole um, whole plethora of different startup businesses that <laughs> deal like with the experiment with new publishing models and uh, new par- peer review models. And uh, this creates like a whole zoo of new publishing platforms with... Um, different levels of different models of peer review but as you say it's not really clear like yeah there's no ranking in a way there's no clear list of like okay this is what it is yeah but also and what i'm taking from your answer is also that basically should be some kind of um, gatekeeping mechanism for press releases and uh uh because a lot of science journalism is based on uh basically the every research institute has the incentive to you know advertise their research right? right to get more funding so now, the gatekeepers now are the press offices of the university or the mm-hmm. institute or whatever the re- wherever the research was done and again talk about perverse incentives right their incentive is to draw attention to the institution to their researchers to exaggerate the study if anything its implications and often in fact there was a there was a study done a couple of years ago where they looked at mainstream reporting of science news mm-hmm. uh, and when the the mainstream reporting overhyped the study most of the time that originated in the press office mm. so they are actually generating a lot of the bad science reporting that is happening the overhyping of studies it's coming from sometimes from the, the researchers themselves sometimes from the media itself too but most of the time it was coming from the press office so that clearly is something that deserves attention um, and whether it's just professional standards, you know, not necessarily any kind of rules. I'm not sure who would, you know, impose these rules. I think these are all self-imposed standards of the profession. But I think there needs to be more um, attention paid to this, more feedback, incentives for uh, for press releases to more accurately reflect the underlying science and to communicate them better. And I, but I do think having a an agreed upon system of demarcating exploratory research from confirmatory research, you know, from preliminary research to, you know, versus review articles. You know, if, um, 
a collection of institutions and experts put together a panel who does a systematic review of the research of you know multiple studies and comes to conclusions that should hold more weight than one guy did a preliminary study with five subjects somewhere but the but the media doesn't really do a good job of distinguishing those things because we're not doing it for them right we're not communicating to them what the difference is between these two those two kinds of studies and press office again some press offices do a fantastic job some individuals they do a great job but there's no real standard there it's all just individuals doing their own thing and uh, I, I we have to think of ways to to standardize i think the way we communicate with the media because right now it's chaos and you know as a science communicator as a you know a scientist science communicator i probably spend most of my time correcting bad science reporting in the mainstream media so that is i think is a reflection of a systemic problem that we have to get creative about and try to fix yeah, I mean, this problem has, um, again, like a um, sort of like a, um, oh, well, in um, in Germany, so like a tale of um, events behind it, sort of. So basically, um, I mean, of course, press officers try to hype up the studies because otherwise they don't get attention of the mainstream press. Mainstream press has not. I mean, basically, there are no science journalists working for mainstream press anymore. So it, you have to grab the attention of like someone who is normally doing crime stories or something. Right. Uh, so of course you have to, yeah. So grab attention of a non-science journalist to get in the paper because only if you get in the paper, you get yeah recognition for your institution, more funding, more science done, and it's like a chain that's just yeah yeah biting itself exactly. basically. So yeah. Um, Coming back to actually to a book because I actually I, I bought it I started reading it and wow I mean really cool <laughs> uh, it's well, very uh, very very interesting I think it's a must must read for any science communicator definitely and also scientist and I was wondering if you would pick any um, bias um, that you think is the science like the the mainstream scientist is most prone to uh, which one would it be. Well, the confirmation bias is the big one, right? That's sort of the big generic bias. We have a tendency to to look at information in a way that confirms what we already believe or what we want to believe. And scientists are susceptible to that as well. One of the specific ways that that manifests that I talk about in the in the book is uh, we tend to test our own hypotheses without testing alternate hypotheses. And when you do, that's a very subtle form of confirmation bias. It makes you think you've done the science, but you really haven't unless you've looked at all the possible answers. Um, and the, uh, the going sort of hand in hand with that is the notion that um, there's a tendency to look for data which confirms our hypothesis rather than specifically looking for data which disconfirms it. We really should be looking to disprove our own hypotheses. That just a, that's a good sort of first approximation of the scientific method is, mm. you know, scientists should be their own worst critic, right? Their own worst skeptic. You should be trying to prove your idea wrong and argue why it's wrong. And then only if it survives a dedicated attempt at proving it wrong, do you give it grudging temporary approval. You know, that's kind of, I think the way that science works the best. If, and if you don't do it, somebody else will. And that's why peer review is important and replication. Um, so, but oftentimes you see researchers are looking for reasons why they're right, looking for reasons why their hypothesis is correct and looking at data in a, and subtly looking at data in a way that's designed to confirm it. 
to confirm that their belief. We see a lot of this in medicine. Um, you know, that's my area of training, so that's what I'm most familiar with. I and mean, we see, you know, people, you think that uh, this your new idea, new treatment works for a disease, and so you do a study that's almost guaranteed to show that it does, you know. Um, we see that a lot, rather than really testing whether or not it does. Um, that That's par for the course in what we would call pseudoscience, but that creeps into mainstream science to uh, to a very great degree. So. Uh, right there, if you just, if, if you just, if scientists, um, and again, most scientists know what they're doing and let's not, not criticizing them. Uh, but I, I think when things do get wrong, that's typically what I see is that scientists forgot to be their own worst skeptics. And in that way they can fall easily fall prey to the two forms of the confirmation bias. Well, I mean, definitely the, the, biggest skeptics of each other's work so <laughs> that at least yeah. there's some kind of self-correcting mechanism there but uh yeah you're right um so you guys started a podcast um i mean the the skeptics uh movement to um sort of well to work against um pseudoscientific uh currents that um are in this well, getting stronger in the society um a lot of scientists um that I talk to, that uh, well, we are in contact with, they say basically, yeah, uh, something should be done um, because we are being criticized as scientists. Um, we're not doing anything wrong, but uh, the society is the society. I mean, the, some loud um, voices are um, against us. We we're not supposed to do any more experiments anymore. Not, not work with stem cells. Gen, gen, genome editing is now a bad thing. Nanotechnology. I mean, whatever we do is just uh, GMOs. It's like, it's all bad and wrong and big pharma anyways. And um, so um, why should we, like, what can we do? Like, how can we, um, how can we defend ourselves? And uh, usually uh, the answer is, well, engage with the society, like explain, talk, uh, mm -hmm. you know, engage, um, do something. It's like, yeah, but nobody's listening. So uh, how? Well, yeah, I, I think people are listening, um, but we, I think we need to be engaging like an order of magnitude more than we are. So... Uh, and I think you know the skeptical movement almost shouldn't have to exist in a perfect world. You know, like I, I, we wouldn't, we shouldn't need a skeptical movement. It exists because the scientific community and the academic communities are not doing their job, in my opinion. Um, so, because fun fundamentally, the the scientific skeptical movement is outreach. It's about making the public more scientifically literate and critically thinking. Um, so first, I think that the scientific community and academia, academia needs to embrace critical thinking as core to what it does, to its mission, which, it, you know, it says it does, but, you know, it doesn't really prioritize it as well as they should. It should be completely built into science education, for example. It's not really taught in any formal or systematic way to scientists or to physicians, for example. Uh, it should be. So that's that's one the other one is I don't think, you know, as much lip service as scientists and academia pay to um, science communication, it's not really valued at the level where it should be. Um, so a good saying, I'm sure, you know, in academia and elsewhere is, you know, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me what you do. Show me your budget or whatever. In academia, it's like you, it doesn't really matter what you say your priorities are. 
your priorities are whatever you promote people for. You know, does it count academically? How much does science communication, how much is it you know, expected of scientists and academics? How much is it rewarded? Um, in my experience, it's very variable, but overall it's not respected or rewarded nearly as much as it should be. And so uh, it's, it's kind of an afterthought in my experience for a lot of working scientists. Uh, or they say, well, it's, I'm glad somebody else is doing it. They don't really see it as core to what they do. Mm-hmm. There's, there is some, some movement to improve this. But again, I think we're so far away from where we need to be. Uh, and again, uh, I think the biggest deficit is scientists and academics, they think of science communication as teaching science to the public. Yeah. But what they're completely missing is engaging with what the public already believes. They don't do that. They don't know that they should do that. And I don't think they want to do that. Because whenever that comes up, they get you know very uh, uncomfortable and they think that it dirties them. It's like, really, I'm going to talk about pseudoscience. I'm going to explain to the public why whatever, why vaccine denial is pseudoscience or why anti-GMO is pseudoscience or why creationism is pseudoscience. You know, they don't, they're, they're uncomfortable with belief systems. They're uncomfortable with anything that in and of itself is pseudoscientific because they think it taints them. Um, and it's, they're wrong. I think it's that attitude is very misguided. So they essentially don't even enter the field of battle with pseudoscience. Um, and then, then they're surprised that it's flourishing in society. Why, you know, then, uh, why is the public coming at us for you know, for GMO research or genetic research or whatever? It's like because you've ignored this issue for decades. You've completely you know ignored the public, the you know uh, beliefs in these areas, and, and therefore the pseudoscientists or industry are free to spread their misinformation with the public. They're engaging with the public very aggressively, and scientists are not. Mm academics or not. So what, what do they expect? You know, this is, a, they, they have the, the exact world that they deserve. So they really have no basis in my opinion to complain when they have created the situation that we are in. So in my opinion, this is my biggest criticism of my own profession. The academic, the medical, the scientific community has utterly failed to engage the public with uh, their beliefs of, in terms of pseudoscience and misinformation and science denial. And, you know, they've had a, a number of wake-up calls and that reads like global warming denial, right? For You, have a, you had an entire profession <clears throat> of climatologists who've never had to really engage with the public before, get blindsided by climate change, you know, climate change denial had no idea what they were doing. So a few people have emerged, like Michael Mann, for example, a few climatologists have emerged who can communicate with the public and really engage with the misinformation. But most of them have no idea how to do that. Mm. Um, in medicine, if you engage with the misinformation, you know, it's you get looked at sort of sideways. Like, what, why, are you, why are you dealing with the kooks? I mean, what, what, what's up with that, you know? Just just let them wallow in their own anonymity. It's like, no, but that's not what's happening. They're actually infiltrating our profession and you're asleep at the switch. That's what's really happening. 
Um, so that's, you know, if there's one thing I could change about the, the, the scientific community, it's they need to recognize that we not only need to understand critical thinking ourselves as a profession, we need to directly address misinformation, confront misinformation in the public. Otherwise, you know, the mobs with pitchforks and torches will be coming for us. That's and it's already happened. I'm actually glad that because we recorded this a few months ago um, and we haven't had a chance to, to broadcast it for various reasons, but I'm actually really glad of that because I think this interview works really well in the context of some of the previous guests that we've had. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, when um, Nov Stephen Novella was talking about combating pseudoscience directly and being vocal in that argument, that reminded me of some of the things we were talking about on the animal uh, research episode and about reclaiming the middle ground and people only hear one voice. Um, and also when he was talking about researchers sharing more more easily and who the gatekeepers are, I think that reminded me of of um, Bjorn Brehm's argument about why do we even need peer review and kind of why are we mm. doing things this way. So actually, I think it, it's nice to have it here and it kind of fits in what we the themes that have been emerging throughout these podcast interviews. I think Stephen was talking uh, much more from a science communicator perspective than all our other guests. It's interesting um, to see that this view is also, um, it's so universal, this incentives questions. It's so visible that there are wrong incentives, the, the gatekeeping, the peer review. There's all problems we talked about before, but other guests with uh, different angles on it. And um, I think Stevens was... Uh, Really interesting. What what I kind of reacted to was uh, when we t when I talked to him about what to believe, right? And in, especially when it comes to peer to peer communication, this question come comes up a lot. Like the last couple times I was doing the the open science workshop, um, people asked about the preprint servers, um, for example. Yeah, but can we actually trust p things that are posted there because it's pre peer review, right? So uh, peer review is the, the quality stamp. So uh, preprint, well, you cannot really trust it. And that was pretty much what um, Steve, uh, Stephen was also saying that, uh, well, how do you trust, like, how do you do you sort through reliable versus unreliable information? Yeah. And I think it's interesting to look at it from a science communication perspective, because for the scientist, my answer is basically, well, but you don't trust any publication you read just because it's peer-reviewed. I mean, you still make your own... Like, when you read the yeah. publication, you read with critical eye anyways. Yeah. Just because it's published in this journal, not the other, does not mean that it has some kind of magic qualities that make it immune to, to errors or uh, wrong reasoning. Yeah, hence retraction watch, of course. Yeah, for example, yeah. Uh, but however, um, if you look at it from science communicator perspective... Um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of, if you do not have the tools, like the knowledge, the really deep subject knowledge to distinguish, like to really look at the, I don't know, at the graphs and methods and like, ah, oh, why they take five molar salt solution where they should, maybe that's a comma error, there should be an 0.5. And I mean, you know, if you cannot go in this kind of detail, yes. uh, maybe it is more difficult to to sort reliable from the 
unreliable. And there, I must say, I, I personally, I don't have any idea of how to solve it better. No, but I think, I mean, Stephen in his book and on the podcast um, very much promotes critical thinking. And I think if that was taught to the general population, just the, the, the skill of critical thinking, then we'd be in a lot better position generally. Um, and I find that, I mean, I'm not scientifically trained as 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 has been established. I, I'm from a humanities background, but I can often discern in um, sort of these kind of over-the-top headlines, you know, okay, so they did this, they did like one study and it had, you know, a very low number of participants or it's causation, you know, correlation is not causation or all these quite common biases and common fallacies if I think this was taught as just, you know, generally or people taught themselves, I think science communication would be in a lot stronger position because it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have to be doing this kind of job of um, protecting people because people could make their own insights themselves. You see what I mean? If, if people yeah. had that uh, critical thing, but I mean, obviously, you know, and not to sound kind of like a conspiracy theorist, but it's not in the interest of the powerful for people to have critical thinking. Oh, well, I mean, no, that, that's for sure. <laughs> no. I, I find it really difficult, this discussion. I mean, the thing is, like, when, when I... Um, so I run this teacher training program, right, as well, and we talk to teachers exactly this kind of thing. So one of the, one of the aims with this teacher training program is a continued professional development program for teachers called Lab Meets Teachers. Um, one of the, the aims for it is basically to give them this critical thinking skills, at least in the subject matter that we can present to them, right? That they actually can uh, trans transport into school this, how do you actually judge yeah, the headlines in the newspaper? However, what we always say is like one of those things that you can do is to go to original literature. However, if you cannot really judge, it's, it's just now real or not. Um, but I think it's very difficult. It's a difficult it, discussion. It is really difficult. It is a difficult question. Um, I would say... It, and it is difficult because, of course, I, I come from a research integrity background um, professionally. And to me, I what always scares me is that the anti-vaxxer thing was born when Andrew Wakefield published in a peer-reviewed journal mm. the link between MMR and autism. And it is total nonsense. It mm. is as fabricated as you know, Lord of the Rings or something. It's 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 fiction. And he did it for money. Um, but that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. Mm. And that made headlines in science communication. And I think, well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I agree with Stephen Novella that you have to fight back. But when sometimes this stuff is coming from within your own ranks, you've got to wonder at what safety mechanisms we actually have in place. Because, yeah, I mean, basically it doesn't matter way Wakefield would have published his study. Well, I mean, yeah, actually it's even worse because this peer review stamp is kind of seen as a stamp of quality. So therefore, yes, of course it's right because it's peer reviewed, yeah. high ranking uh, journals. I mean, and the media played, I, I don't wanna, I don't want to say that science is quite completely um, unable to, to, to gatekeep at all. I mean, the media did a lot of damage with this. I mean, it was refuted quite quickly. It was discovered what he had done. He was made, made public, but the media just were interested in the initial finding, and that's a problem. But on the other hand, how did this ever get past peer review? Hmm. 
So so everybody has their dirty fingers in the store. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid so. Yeah. This whole gatekeeping topic, for me it also ties in into the what he said, what Stephen said about citizen science, um, which I actually I totally agree with. Um, I, I wonder what you'll say to that, but... He said, I mean, what he said is basically, yes, yeah, so this is cool, but it has to be supervised by scientists, has to be in con controlled sort of by and led by scientists to have the scientific rigor because otherwise you end up in this pseudoscientific noise of like anything goes, basically, as you can see patterns wherever. Yeah, I mean, I don't see what the point of training somebody for years is just so that you can ignore them. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, people train to be scientists for a long, long time. Um, they work very hard to be very knowledgeable about specific parts of the way that the world works. Why you would then just go, okay, this, you know, stockbroker from London is just as equally qualified. So Google. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Dr. Google, you know. Um, I'm all for people in um, educating themselves and being involved in science and casting of fresh ideas but i don't think you can kind of like remove the scientists from it otherwise what's the point yeah um so uh steven and his uh skeptics um crew team um they wrote a fantastic book it's really good i've read it and i'm kind of upset about uh, myself in some when you, you really um, start thinking biases, you find them everywhere, and mainly with yourself. Uh, but it's really good. No, it's a really, really good book. Uh, so I can just recommend. It's called um, Skeptic's Guide to Universe, of course, with the subtitle, How to Know What's Really Real in a World Increasingly Full of Fake. That's a great title. Yeah. And you know how the book starts? Spock lied to me. For those of you um, who've read Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World, this is kind of of the same vein. So if you enjoy that, you'll enjoy this. And if you enjoy this, go back and read that as well. Okay, that's it for this episode. Um, the podcast was made possible by the EU-funded Orion Project. Um, check it out. There's some really cool training materials and um, other resources. We're doing some really cool projects. If you're a, a researcher, there's uh, funding available for various co-creation citizen science and so forth so go just google uh, orion open science project and you'll find the website and otherwise if you specifically want to know more just write us at orion at mdc-berlin.de we are also on twitter we are at oosp underscore orion pod uh, follow us retweet us message us comment. The music for the show was written and produced by Fabio de Miguel and the sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. See you in two weeks. See you. Bye.